Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like slugs, bullies, and patronisation. Oh, I love the idea of patronisation. Or we could do pain, gain, rain, the plane, the drain, and <laughs> the insane. I'm channelling my inner Cypress Hill here. I'm thinking about mm. insane in the membrane, insane in the brain. However, Sam, I had the most extraordinary experience the other day. I was lucky enough to go along to teach on an MA in public history module that's part of our fantastic heritage, heritage MA at the University of Plymouth. And I had an amazing class with this brilliant group of young historians and heritage professionals, and I was talking to them all about podcasting, and I got them at the end to brainstorm some ideas for histories of the unexpected. And oh, yeah. they thought we should do trousers, underwear, <laughs> uh, oh, okay. ruffs, lockets. Um, they thought we should also do statues, but my favourite, my favourite favourite, was bananas. Oh. We've never done bananas. Bananas are about... Banana Republic, um, Atlantic slave trade. Also, yeah. fascinatingly, it's the long lost banana. Did you know that there was a long lost <laughs> banana? No, no, no. Tell so, me about so, the long lost you know, banana. Apparently, oh, for well, like a thousand pounds, you can buy the sort of long lost bananas. That's a, a taste that is no more. And we have the sort of modern day bananas now that don't really taste like. Oh, we bananas do. We have bananas to. with no seed. We have bananas with no seeds in. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So right, I think we should maybe do then. we should maybe do uh, bananas, but that was courtesy of that brilliant uh, class. I wish, in a way, that if I were doing my whole life again, I actually think I would take that heritage MA uh, mm. because it, they are just doing the most brilliant, fascinating work out everywhere, all sorts of properties, doing kind of real life, hands on experience stuff. So, um, but also, I think we should do the history of the thumb because I've managed to sever my thumb this week uh, with a very sharp <laughs> Santuco oh, blade, and oh. took the took the top off it. Uh, and I oh. was cooking Sam Willis a a delightful Moroccan fish tagine, and there was a really large carrot that I was trying to slice, and just thinking, you know, daybell thoughts, uh, thinking, well, probably thinking about histories of the unexpected, and managed to just slice the top off. Um, oh, however, I, th I think thumbs would be fantastic. Thumbs would I be really good. Do. It's amazing um, how how reliant on your thumb you are. 
Um, yeah, yeah, because it, no, it's all to do with deep history and um, and uh, and the, the power to control your hands, which is what makes us, uh, a, you know, a, a unique species. Yes. And um, and hitchhiking, obviously. Yes. Yes. So we should oh, do. Oh, and insults. There's a lot of biting of thumbs, Ooh, isn't there? In, in let's do thumbs time. next. Well, let's do thumbs and bananas, guys. Thumbs but and bananas. We should bananas. probably crack on with what we're supposed to be talking yes, about. Yes, exactly, because we are monstrously <laughs> digressing in a truly Debellian way. Because we should, and we will, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, this is one of my favourite recent episodes, who knew that the, hit, the unexpected history of corridors is in fact all about humanitarian corridors. It's about Victorian hierarchy, French social planning, madness, crime, social control, and also the anti-caridic, yes, that is a word, world of the open space. It's also all about diplomacy and corridors of power, as well as war and new corridors. Who knew? Or Mm. who knew that the history of mothers is in fact all about Sigmund Freud's controversially proposed Oedipus complex. It's about the archaeological site of Bampo in China, discovered in 1953. It's about the Cross of Honour handed out to mothers in Nazi Germany. It's about Stalin's order of maternal glory. And it's also all about the 15th century Paston letters and Lady Anne Clifford. Two of my favourite episodes. They're absolutely fantastic, both of them. They sum up what it is to do histories of the unexpected. But now uh, you're all probably wondering who is telling you all of this wonderful information. Let me just say that if history were an organ grinder, (laughs) this is going to bend your brain. Yes, one of those remarkable historical characters who painted the world with sound without the need for any musical ability. Interesting fact there. Then this man would be his pet monkey, perching on history's (laughs) shoulder with the bent hind legs of research, capering this way and that with his white gloves and pencils, performing intellectual tricks to draw attention to the past in the great fairground of the world. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell, the monkey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm not sure I like being a monkey uh, in that analogy. I'd, I'd be the organ grinder rather than the monkey, okay. uh, if that's OK. I'd like to flip that. However, you're a monkey as well in this. You may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a monkey-related historian, he'd be swinging through the trees of the past, discovering the secrets that lie within the canopy, scrupulously picking through the flea-like facts of history in an attempt to make it hygienic and digestible for his readership. There's no monkey around, monkeying around with this king of the historical swingers. It's the famous <laughs> historical... <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Sam Willis. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> very good. It's very good. Sorry, I'm 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 so amused by my own um, nonsense. Good. Um, hi guys, we're doing monkeys. Um, and uh, very excited about doing monkeys. I was reading an article in the week, I think, which was inspired me. Was it me to do monkeys, or I found it afterwards? But um, fantastic. Do you know about the drunken monkey theory, James? No, I don't. So in 2014, a biologist, a chap called Robert Dudley from uh, Berkeley, University of California, came up with an idea and he suggests that humans may be um, d- congenitally drawn to alcohol because our ape and monkey ancestors learned millennia ago that if they followed the scent, um, it would lead them to particularly ripe fruit, which Ooh. is which is what they Ooh. wanted. 
Um, and uh, there's been all sorts of wonderful, fascinating research about this now. Um, and discovered that actually, uh, if you if you do a study like this and you study the fruit that the monkeys are eating and then the ones that they're discarding, they found that the alcohol concentration in the fruit they were eating is typically higher than the ones they were discarding. Uh, and the monkey's urine also reveals that the animals were metabolising the alcohol. Um, so it's really interesting. So the uh, it shows that they were using it for energy. It wasn't just passing through their bodies. So they were they were specifically going for boozy fruit. So if you sit down and you have a nice gin and tonic at the end of the day, anyone who's listening here, then um, you need to, to nod uh, towards your, your monkey ancestors, I think. I oh, thought that was nice. a good story. I had a yeah. similar, similar sort of experimental sort of direction with this and I was thinking about the infinite monkey theorem. I was out to dinner with colleagues on uh, Friday night and my wonderful colleague Rupert was telling me about this. Um, the infinite monkey theorem and this is the idea, you've probably heard about this, is this, this is the idea that if you put a typewriter in front of a monkey uh, there is a probability that it will hit the keys at random and for if it does it for an infinite amount of time it is almost surely um, able to type a a work like the complete works of Shakespeare. So, for example, Shakespeare's <laughs> Hamlet, uh, whatever. And there's all sorts of theorising uh, being done about this from from Borges and, and various other people. Um, some really complicated maths about it. It is it is highly, 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 highly unlikely, but not impossible. Uh, I started reading through all the sort of um, uh, the, the mathematical theorems about it, and 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 frankly, uh, got lost. Uh, in the first <laughs> paragraph, it just, it just suddenly, but you know, defeated my GCSE A level um, or A grade uh, level of of maths. Even though I'm you know, tutoring my daughters as we go, um, but as I read further, I discovered actually that co colleagues of mine in the art department at Plymouth many many years ago had got some arts council funding to try this in practice, and so they got they got two thousand pounds from the Arts Council, to try this with literal monkeys in Paynton Zoo in Devon, which is a wonderful zoo if you've never been there. And they had six monkeys in this enclosure and they put a typewriter uh, in it and they left it there. And what they paid for really was the the kit that enabled them to view this remotely. Uh, and actually it was a piece of performance art. Um, but but their their research from it uh, basically said that it, it it you know very little came out of it so it was a complete <laughs> disaster if you had a look at actually what happened you know one of the lead male monkeys started hitting it with a with a stone uh they pr produced some material uh which mainly consisted of uh, one letter the letter s and a couple of other sort of letters that they they typed in um and they ended up defecating on it and and so in in a sense <laughs> they learned it was a it was a total and utter disaster uh but they learned an awful lot from it and if you think about it in terms of what they learned about the monkeys um the director of the university's institute for digital arts mike phillips uh, described that what we learned from it was that um, monkeys are not random generators. They're more complex than that. They're quite interested in the screen, and they saw mm. that when they typed a letter, something happened. There was a level of intention there. Um, the the scientific officer at Paynton Zoo, Dr. Amy Plowman, uh, basically said that they learned very little uh, from it, um, and 
you know, so there was very little sort of scientific uh, stuff that, that flowed from it. But actually, as a piece of performance art, I think it's really quite, uh, quite important and quite meaningful. Um, mm. And it Where also that? showed that the infinite Where... monkey theory was deeply fraud, flawed. Um, yeah. So, when was yes. that recently? Ten, ten years ago, did you say? Uh, 2002, so 20 oh, years ago. 20 years ago. Good yes. bit of history. There. That's the history itself. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, I looked into, after my analogy of you and uh, being the organ grinder, not mm. the, or the monkey on the organ grinder shot, I looked into this because I, I was suddenly really interested in these organs. I've got a vision of a guy standing there with a kind of... Uh, so it's a man, an elderly man is what I have a vision of. Mm. Uh, I might be wrong. Um with a box which has got a handle on it you crank the handle and it produces music so you don't it's it's actually a really interesting musical device uh, which will have its own history because you don't need skill to produce music um and it was actually developed in the 1700s in Europe particularly in Italy um and because it produces music automatically, it's actually fascinating the way it's it's got a, a really important position in in like the history of automation. Um, mm. So is it the early history of computers. Uh, it made me think of the. Um, do you know what the Jacquard loom is? So. Um, uh, no, no, think. think Let's no, think just say no for sure. Think, short okay, cut. fine. So, so think nineteenth century. Um, uh, early industrial revolution, and they start building machines that can oh, yes. weave yes, yes, yes. cloth quicker. Right, the Jacquard one is the first one, so invented by a Frenchman, and he has a series of cards, right, which have got holes in them, and they control whether the weave or the weft or the waft—I'm not sure which one it is—but um, uh, ha- when it's raised up or when it's not raised up, which essentially uh, determines the pattern on the loom. And this was all done manually, but he worked out a system of. Of having these circular things, which which basically allowed these, it allowed the um, material to pass through the hole, or it couldn't pass through the hole, uh, and therefore by introducing these cards with punched holes in them, you could automatically control the manufacture of cloth in a certain way, and it could be done much faster, and it could be done uh, without any skill. So you didn't have to someone who could, who actually had to kind of manually do it. Um, and it made me think of exactly the same thing here, which was the um, this hand-cranked organ. Anyway, uh, it was, this is all completely by the by, because the interesting about this, of course, is what's happening with the monkey. Um, mm. So it begins in Italy, uh, brought to America by Italian immigrants, becomes very popular there. Uh, and then it does, tends to go back to Europe, which is quite interesting. And everyone uh, adopts the monkey as, an, as a, a little pet. It would um, kind of fly around, perform tricks, draw attention to the organ grinder and collect money as well. Apart from in France, where they did it with little dogs rather than with um, with monkeys. Um, they became very popular because they became very popular. There are lots of accounts of them. They feature in uh, lots of contemporary newspapers, particularly from the 19th century. A fantastic one here from the Washington Post in 1884 in October. It tells the story of an Italian organ grinder and his uh, monkey dancing around in a red coat. And um, the story goes is that he, the, the organ grinder walks into the old deaf and dumb asylum on 6 and M streets, uh, not realising that the inhabitants would be unable to hear his music. Apparently, though, the residents uh, really enjoyed the monkey's antics and he left uh, enriched by numerous coppers. Uh, It's a really interesting story, that, because actually what they're doing is they are laughing at the organ grinder. It's um, it's kind of an example of uh, 
uh, fear of immigrants, um, racism, xenophobia. So, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful story of this stupid old organ grinder who took his organ into into the deaf and dumb asylum. So, of course, no one could see him or hear him. So a silly place to go. Um, and there are lots of other examples where tales of organ grinders are used to um, il- illustrate things like like this. Um, it, it's absolutely fascinating, but it's, it's all to do with the relationship between immigrants and uh, and those who consider themselves uh, non-immigrants, even though they probably immigrated to America in the first places. Um, also, examples of cruelty to the animals. Whenever you've got history with animals in, you always have some form of cruelty. There's always a history of cruelty, as we know with our episode on cats. If you haven't listened to our episode on cats, do go back and listen to that. It's one of the most interesting ones. Um, so here, uh, again, in the Washington Post, 1901, um, you've got a story of an eight-year-old called Thomas. And what he does is um, there's an organ grinder, Thomas, uh, eight-year-old sort of naughty boy, starts climbing up a lamppost trying to chase this monkey away. Monkey gets to the top of the lamppost. Thomas pulls it down by the tail. Furious monkey spins round halfway, sinks teeth into hand of boy. Um, and then starts chewing his fingers while this child is stuck up the lamppost um, and then eventually is forced to let go by the organ grinder who then has to defend his his partner in court uh, because it's attacked this boy even though the boy has clearly antagonised it and uh, at the end of it apparently he goes off and plays a tune on his organ which is You'll Remember Me which I thought was a wonderful way to end the story <laughs> so um, the history of Italian immigration and um, or, or, you know all of the kind of the, the problems that street musicians experienced in 19th century America um, it was quite interesting also reading about it, the, the kind of people who were listening to the music. So it's street musicians, it's people who, who were kind of flocked around were those who couldn't necessarily afford to go to music halls or, um, you know, buy um, early form of records, phonographs, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so certainly an entertainment for those who lived in the streets, for the poor um and uh, it's very interesting the way that they they reacted to the music and to the immigrants and to the pet monkeys, which they would have found exotic as well. Fascinating history there, James. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, absolutely fascinating history, Sam. So I want to take it in a slightly different direction, and I want to talk about monkeys and the space race and the history <laughs> of good. space flight. So monkeys going up into into space and i was reading several fascinating articles about this about the different kinds of animals that went up into space the difference between the american space program and the russian space program which i'll I'll talk a little bit about but we're talking here about post world war ii 
So we're talking the sort of late 1940s when the space race is really taking off. And this is a time when scientists didn't really understand the impact that space travel, space flight would have on the human body. So they worried that people would die, that cardiovascular systems would fail. They didn't know about the atmosphere in space. You know, they thought that people would instantly die. And so what they turned to was large animals um, that sort of replicated humans and put them up into space. And of course, the kind of animal that they used first of all was the monkey so they were looking for a you know a primate that could approximate you know human beings and one of the first um examples of using a monkey was a monkey a rhesus monkey named albert who on the june 1948 was strapped into a v2 rocket and went into what is called subspace so it's below sort of you know the space deep space um and it's an altitude of about 39 miles or 63 kilometers and you know they were really interested in what in what is happening what is happening to this and of course in this early stage um he dies basically uh dies of suffocation um and in this sort of early phase they re- these monkeys are really being used in an experimental way and sacrifice their lives to the what was basically the emerging of spe- development of space flight um and we can see this sort of rolled over a number of years uh in june uh, 1949 another v2 was launched it went to an altitude of about 83 miles and another uh, rhesus monkey this time uh, albert the second uh, was put up there and what happened here was he died he survived the launch but then there was a parachute failure uh, which meant that the capsule uh, crashed into the ground with great force and he died you know from that there are um, similar Alberts <laughs> there is an Albert 3 and an Albert 4 and an Albert 5 and an Albert 6 uh, between the years of late 1949 and 1951 all of whom died uh, th- through one sort of happenstance or another including another failed um, parachute failure um, by about uh, 1959 they have more or less sort of perfected things. And by this point, the United States has two primates that have gone up into space and they have survived afterwards. So a a monkey uh, named Abel uh, and also a squirrel monkey uh, named Baker, of all things. And they managed to find to reach an altitude of around 300 miles uh, aboard a rocket called Jupiter. Uh, and they were retrieved um, you know, more or less unharmed, although Abel um, dies later on through an operation uh, which was to remove an electrode that was underneath her skin. And so, but what, what this is, this is basically enabling them to establish that it was safe to use humans to go up into space. And after that, you get monkeys still being used, monkeys and apes still being used, but they're there much more for experiments rather than to test whether flights actually work. So monkeys then are 
absolutely intrinsic to the scientific experiments of space exploration for the United States post-World War II up until about the end of the 1950s. The converse is true of the Soviet Union. Uh, they did not use monkeys, first of all. Instead, they used dogs. Did you know that, Sam? Dogs mm, do- rings a bell. Dogs went into, into space. And one of the first dogs that went into, into space um, was a, a dog called Laker, uh, which is translated as Barker. Uh, it's a very original name for, for a dog. Um, <laughs> and it orbited um, aboard the Sputnik 2 spacecraft in... Uh, November 1957, uh, and sadly again died during the during the flight. But instead of using instead of using monkeys in this early stage, they used they used canines. Um, and it's only later on that in the 1980s and 1990s that they start using rhesus monkeys. Um, we can also see this happening in France. So they send up in 1967, they send up some uh, some um, pigtailed uh, macaque uh, monkeys. And more recently in Iran, the sort of the Iranian um, uh, space exploration uh, in 2013 so in January 2013 launched a live monkey into space so a, a, a space program that is slightly less well advanced than uh, the Americans or the Russians so there we are Sam that was what got me thinking uh, historically about monkeys very good uh, fascinating stuff I, I came across a brilliant story um, which uh, you'll see why I was interested in it but it's about people finding some monkey teeth in Panama and why this is important. So about four million years ago, right, the tectonic plates that underlie North and South America smash into each other and that creates the uh, isthmus of Panama. Um, and this has been, you know, well known and established. Uh, but what's really interesting about it is that they've just found seven monkey teeth in Panama and it suggests that monkeys crossed from what was South America to North America before they were joined. Um, and there was probably about 100 miles of ocean there before these two, uh, two massive tectonic plates smashed in together. And the only explanation is that the monkeys um, somehow managed to get across that 100 miles. No small distance at all. Um, probably floated. They can't swim that far, so they, they they floated over. And they probably did it on a, a kind of a mat of vegetation. Uh, you often get these when in that part of the world where there's been a hurricane or an earthquake or a tsunami, uh, something like that, with things getting washed on shore. And so monkeys will hop on and will then um, basically navigate across from South America to North America. And I was fascinated by this. I thought it was a wonderful story of animals uh, navigating or suddenly finding themselves in a different part of the world. But there's an even more stronger story here, because we know that the fossil record shows that monkeys evolved in Africa. And at some point 
in uh, between 34 and 37 million years ago. They got to South America. So they actually did it. That's how they got to South America before they went to North America on a map. They reckon they did it on a similar kind of mat of vegetation from Africa to South America. So I thought that was a fascinating deep history story there. But what I think is, is more interesting is that they um, the monkey teeth were found in Panama because they were extending the Panama Canal. And uh, I love the way that you've got this link between um, uh, human engineering achievements and the growth in the knowledge of global history. And there are lots of other examples of it. I mean, the Panama Canal itself is fascinating. Uh, and um, I bet this is, I need to look into this more, but I, I absolutely bet this is not the only kind of significant historical discovery that has come out of people excavating the Panama Canal. The canal itself, finished by the Americans 1904 to 1914. Really interesting early chapter was actually the French who began digging it in the late 19th century because they, of course, owned all of the land around Panama. I was very surprised by that. I thought it was Spanish, but it wasn't. It was French. Um, and it just so happened they had a very famous French man, very good at building canals, a guy called Ferdinand de Lesseps, and uh, he'd built the Suez Canal. This early uh, attempt of the French to to build the Suez Canal uh, failed catastrophically because um, of the snakes, spiders, insects, yellow fever, of the malaria, all at a time when they hadn't quite worked out uh, that the mosquito was uh, was fundamental in in transforming uh, and, and moving diseases around populations. Um, really interesting history of how the French actually hid the number of deaths back in France uh, to make sure that they could carry on recruiting more people to come out and work on the project. But they were reckoning. Um, it, it was thousands and thousands uh, of people died, maybe 22,000 in total, maybe 200 per month at the height of the construction of the Panama Canal. Now, the, the, these monkey teeth were discovered in a much more modern expansion project where they've essentially doubled the capacity of the Panama Canal. Uh, but that construction has its own history. And I love the way that there was a link between human construction, uh, engineering efforts and the discovering of history. Um, it happens so much. I've done quite a lot of work of industrial archaeology and archaeology linked around um, modern construction projects. And uh, the two very much go hand in hand, particularly now in China, where the Chinese are uh, now legally required to excavate any archaeology that they discovered under as, as they go on developing their cities, which is why all of the most amazing uh, discoveries all happening in China primarily at the minute. So uh, I thought it was a fascinating, um, fascinating example to make us think of the link between human building projects and our understanding of history. Oh, I love that, Sam. Um, if you check your phone, I have just texted you uh, mm -hmm. an image that I'm going to talk about. Ah. Uh -huh. So I was fascinated by the idea of monkeys in art. And so I wanted to do a little bit of reading about this. And I stumbled across a brilliant article by an art historian called Alexander Lee, who I think was at the time a fellow at Warwick University. And you can find it in History Today. And it's entitled From Wall Paintings in Egyptian Tombs to the Margins of Illuminated Manuscripts. Um, and a history of monkeys. And basically, it's about Dutch art 
in the uh, 16th through to the 17th century, when we get a total craze in monkeys. Uh, and the piece argues about about a shift between sort of ancient and medieval approaches to monkeys, where basically you see monkeys cropping up all over the place, but they're seen very much in allegorical uh, ways. They seem very much in sort of moral moral terms. And then in the 16th century, they become figures of fun that are used to poke fun at human beings. And the article unpacks um, why that comes into into being. And part of it is associated with the cabinets of curiosity that we find uh, in the Netherlands at this period, and part of that is is about displaying exoticism, exotic objects, and also really interesting pieces of art. And so we find that um, that this sort of that that pictures, paintings of monkeys become really uh, topical and fascinating at this period, and it is also pioneered by several. Uh, key artistic families throughout the late 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, people like the, the Van der Boeks, the Bruegels, the Frankens, the Teniers, and they have a real interest in this genre of, of painting, and that that then leads to the development of the this this, this form of, of art and lots of people sort of start painting in that form. The piece that I want you to look at, Sam, is a 1562 etching uh, by one of the men in, in one of those sort of great um, artistic families, Peter van der Hayden, and it's a merchant robbed by monkeys. And this apparently turned the Dutch art world upside down. It follows a painting by Peter Bruegel, uh, the elder, and it shows a well-known folk story. And if you have a look at this, it's in black and white, but if you have a look at it, we've got as a sort of rustic uh, fellow with tousled hair who has fallen asleep. It's a peddler who's fallen asleep in a forest underneath a tree, and his peddler's pack... He has left a peddler's pack is a sort of it's got a it's got a wooden lid. It's made out of what looks like woven uh, material, woven sort of rope. And in it is all sorts of all sorts of interesting articles that he would have taken to a local market and and sold. And while he is asleep, a gang of monkeys has come out and started getting up to all kinds of mischief. And what's interesting about them is that they look really human in their appearance and they are up to all sorts of tricks they're running off with all his stuff they're trying on i see they're a, a set of glove pair of gloves uh which is fascinating for a book that i'm writing at the moment just in case you had not noticed that i was um writing a book on gloves but they're trying on a pair of gloves one of is trying on a pair of spectacles another is uh, is trying on a pair of children's uh, sort of stockings. Another is going off with what looks like a, a scarf or ribbons. Uh, another it seems to be urinating into his hat. A couple are riding hobby horses. Others are sort of dancing around, playing on a drum. Uh, another is actually uh, pulling down his trousers and staring at his bare buttocks. Uh, so there's all sorts of mayhem uh, that is going on here. And a lot of this 
Uh, this sets off, as I said earlier on, uh, this sets off a real craze for what is described as simian art, or these monkey games, and these monkeys being used, not in metaphorical or ornamental ways as they had been before, but in a sort of very, in, in the way of a parody, dressing them up in, in human clothes, doing human activities, getting involved in human affairs, and really ridiculing people and we can see the influence that this has in a whole range of other paintings from the the period so Franz Franken the younger um, painted a, a picture called monkeys in the kitchen uh, Jan Bruegel the elder um, uh, and Jan Bruegel the the younger both um, you know painted in this in this in this form um, the Guardroom with monkeys, uh, David Tenier uh, the Younger uh, in 1633. So these are all sort of paintings that depict monkeys up to all sorts of mischief. Now, why does it become so popular? That's something else that he that he talks about in this. Part of it is is as I said, it's about the cabinets of curiosities. It's about the the families that promote it. But also, I think some of it is due to the degree of foreign travel uh, here, Dutch people's experience of monkeys. And as there is trade into North and West Africa and also into the Americas, what you have is the introduction to a bewildering range of different kinds of monkeys uh, that they hadn't encountered before. You know, if you, if you think about the, the, the macaques and the langurs, for example, um, you know, monkeys that are that show a great deal of, of intelligence and yeah, and really sort of human forms. These are brought back to Europe by sailors, by traders, by naturalists, and they suddenly become things that people are able to look at. Um, there's also, however, at the same point, there's also a strand of thought and experimentation and thinking about the nature of monkeys. And I think this is really interesting. Before, they had been very much viewed through the lens of the Bible. God had created man very much in his image, and animals were lesser, imperfect forms of lives. Uh, and monkeys really are sort of in between because they are so similar to human beings. Um, but then you have a strand of thought that starts seeing them as irrational beings. So they are, in some ways, they are seen as very much as subhuman. And influential here is the philosopher René Descartes. And I think what this means is that we have a completely different way of looking at monkeys. And this ties in with what you were talking about, Sam, and the cruelty to monkeys that suddenly... And also ties in with what we were arguing about what I was talking about with space and the way in which these monkeys were almost disposable. You could send them up for the, you know, great of scientific and space discovery. But basically the argument was that they were, they suffered, they had, they were, were irrational, didn't suffer pain, didn't experience emotion. So in, in a sense, they don't really deserve moral consideration and then they can be mistreated, brutalised, and as the article says, even vivisected at will. Um, and so I think that that in itself is a really important 
sort of transition that happens in the 17th century and continues through into the 19th century when I think you have, you know, you think about somebody like Charles Darwin and Darwin is thinking much more about, you know, about the development of species and actually what we have is a sort of, is a is a move back towards seeing the similarities of monkeys and humans as being much more important than those dissimilarities. So there we are, Sam. It's about it's about the history of monkeys depicted in art, but then also about how we think about and conceptualise monkeys. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And that has its own history, of course, as well. And unsurprisingly, you may think there's a lot of race theory, 19th century stuff going on there. And also some really interesting literature. Um, people like Edgar Rice Burroughs, creator of Tarzan. Um, and here, I mean, <laughs> it's quite obvious what's going on here. But um, Tarzan, uh, Mr. Burroughs tells us, uh, actually means white skin in ape language because Mr. Burroughs speaks ape language. And what you've got here is a story of um, of a white man essentially ruling a black continent. Um, so, uh, it, you know, it should inspire you to go back to the, the fairly extraordinary story of Tarzan and um, you put it into uh, a context of race relations and imperialism. Um, well, there we are, guys. That's our history of monkeys. What do you think of that, James? I, I loved great. it, Sam. Hmm. So much more to do. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Do please follow uh, me on social media to find out uh, what we've got coming up. Um, I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And also, if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out uh, my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media on Twitter at James Daybell. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. So come along and make friends there. We also have a web page, a website, web page, a website. Oh. <laughs> Singing and dancing. 1993. Web, 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 website, <laughs> dot com, where you can find out everything that we've been doing. You can look at our back catalogue. You can get signed books, all those kinds of things. Um, and also, should you wish to be a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, head over to patreon.com, where we have a page there and all sorts of interesting levels of membership to help us change the way in which people think about the past. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be back again soon, guys, with thumbs and bananas. Excellent. Love it. Take care, guys. Bye. Cheerio. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.